Welcome to a special edition of Feed Your Please, a hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. I'm your co-host, Peter. And we are taking a brief break from that Delta Quadrant voyage, because this is a special episode coming to you thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to all you guys for keeping the podcast lights on. And uh, as a thank you to those folks, we we do an episode that stays exclusive to them for a while. Um, and uh, we, we leave it up to the community to vote on what we talk about. Last time, they they did us the solid of telling us to review the, the TNG porn parody, which so was amazing. So, so fantastic to uh, to be able to do that. Probably our finest work ever. Uh, this time, it's, a, I guess, a far more mainstream thing for fans to talk about. And that is uh, possibly one of the best Star Trek movies made, Galaxy Quest. <laughs> and uh, we didn't just watch Galaxy Quest, though. We also watched the documentary Never Surrender, which is on Amazon Prime. So uh, I, I basically doubleheaded it. I watched the movie and then I watched uh, the uh, documentary right after. Uh, certainly not my first time seeing the movie. Um, you know who did that but, documentary? Uh, it was Screen Junkies. I yeah, believe. the guys that do the honest trailers on YouTube. It felt like a production at that level. You know, they kind of got everyone to do it. I, I noticed Sam Rockwell probably couldn't didn't really want to. <laughs> he had the I don't want to be doing this vibe, but uh, everybody else like Sigourney Weaver, you know, Tim Allen, they were they were they were into it. But yeah. I've been watching Um, a lot of behind the scenes stuff uh, because this morning I actually watched uh, a documentary on the making of the the terrible fucking miserable experience that went into making Island of Dr. Moreau. And if anybody out there is looking for an hour and a half to kill, I highly recommend that. That is one of the most insane production experiences I think uh, that have ever happened in the course of humanity. So um, I, I I definitely agree with you. I haven't had a chance to watch that yet, but the stories have long since been like movie making legends, like literally a cast members attempting to get the fuck away, like literally run away from doing the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it You know, it's like the madness of uh, late, late stage. God, the actor, the guy uh, who played Dr. Moreau. You're talking about how <laughs> we both look terrible. Uh... Yeah. One of the most famous actors of all time. Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, yeah. And even uh, Val Kilmer, who uh, has a special place in my heart because for, I don't know, the past 12 years, we have an ongoing joke where when we're at conventions and other places together and I get real drunk, I start telling people that I'm Val Kilmer's nephew and they believe me and I get special (laughs) treatment. Why not, right? That's Dude, we got a perfectly believable lie. Thing. Like, I just, we all <laughs> You've blown it, though, now. You've blown it. People will hear this. They'll know now. Listen, we'll get out. I've got star power within the, the podcaster fear now to supplant that. But we used to, uh, we'd read the, the Wikipedia, and I was his nephew, and then we'd say that Nate was my bodyguard, and uh, we'd work in other crazy roles. And, like, who's going to say, no, I'm not Val Kilmer's nephew? Like, that's, that's opened a few very lulzy doors for us <laughs> hey listen you can take the larper out of the game but the larper never leaves the man yeah man. i get it i didn't see this movie until after it was out of theaters i was definitely one of those people who saw the the marketing for this and were like oh that doesn't seem 
that doesn't seem right. It seems kind of like a far, like kind of a kid's movie. And I took a total pass on it. And it wasn't until it was out on DVD a few years later that I got told like, no, this is actually really good. And I, I watched it. I know you like worked at a movie theater. Did you see this when it came out? No. And, and this is a very special time, right? So in high school, I worked for Regal Cinemas in Mayfield, Ohio. It was a 10 screen uh, theater, 10 auditoriums. This came out in 1999. So I'm sure a big part of it was that I was working in a movie theater and I got to see movies for free. But it was also a really great time for movies and sci-fi movies. And, you know, it's a simpler time. This is like kind of pre-internet. You know, I remember the earliest, uh, the best pirated movie that was out there was a two-part file for the matrix which came out in 99 green mile american pie fight club and i've got an amazing fight club story if anybody ever wants to <laughs> ask me about that in person i can't really that's that is too spicy for this podcast. way too spicy but american beauty uh oh yeah 99 was fucking baller for movies 13th floor which was a weird one but a good one uh millennial man Blair Witch House on Haunted Hill. I'm a huge uh, Dark Castle fan. I mean, the 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 list goes on. So much good stuff came in. You know, some not so much good stuff. Wow, Wow West. I just saw the YouTube interview with Will Smith where he talks about passing on the Neo role so he could be in Wild Wild West and the mistake that was. Uh, Star Wars came out. So that was a huge deal. That was people skip work to watch that movie. Deep Blue Sea. A motherfucking shark ate Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, spoiler, dude. Come on. That's like the best fucking scene in that movie. Yeah, well, they ruined it in Chappelle's show. So, you know, that's true. OK, yeah, yeah. Sure gave me. Yeah, OK, yeah, it's true. If you haven't seen Deep Blue Sea, probably one of the un- most underrated movie of 1999. Deep Blue Sea, you cannot get the soundtrack off of Spotify. I don't know. There's like some rights things. I wanted to hear the the deepest bluest sea by that was a uh, LL Cool J, but you couldn't. What's not in there? Anyways, what I'm getting to is that 1999 had a ton of great movies. I'm working at the movie theater. Uh, I was really looking forward to seeing uh, Galaxy Quest, but the marketing on this movie was, as we will discuss in more detail later, completely bonkers. They completely mismarketed this thing uh, as far as the target demographic they were going after. And I don't know what the details were. And I tried doing a little Googling to find out. But there was some some argument somehow between New Line Cinema, which released Galaxy Quest and Regal Cinemas. And as a result, I don't know who said fuck you first, but the end product was that no Regal Cinemas carried Galaxy Quest. So I never watched this thing in the movie theater because also when you work for a movie theater, and you see movies for free. The idea of paying money to go see a movie <laughs> Or paying money for fucking popcorn, which I've probably eaten six times the amount of popcorn that a normal human man would have eaten, uh, is ridiculous. So if it was not coming through our theater, I would refuse to watch it, to to go somewhere and pay money for it. And uh, I did not get to see Galaxy Quest. And that the fact that Regal Cinemas did not carry Galaxy Quest is kind of just like a smaller piece of the bigger picture, which is. Why did this movie not knock it out at the at the box office? What is the best Star Trek movie, a great sci-fi movie, a, a just, 
you know, the, the, the documentary we watched, Never Give Up, Never Surrender, it opens talking about the Pulitzer Prize winner who says, you know, there's only four perfect movies and one of them is Galaxy Quest. Uh, and how was this thing a sleeper for so long to turn into a cult hit today? And it's it just really feels like 101 different active efforts by New Line to like kneecap this thing. I, it just, I think the the documentary is very enlightening to that specific question. I do recommend the documentary if you haven't seen it. It's free on Amazon Prime, so if you got a Prime subscription, go check it out. Is that because DreamWorks was looking to market a family movie in December of '99 to make you know to make dollars on the holiday release schedule? And Tim Allen was a guy whose biggest movie to date was at that point and still is the Santa Claus movies. They're like, cool, Tim Allen's in this movie, uh, cut it to a PG and put it, you know, market it as a family movie, which is just the bloodless, uh, you know, uh, marketing move. Um, it's, I think, interesting, though, that cutting it to being PG made it feel more like Star Trek. Because Star Trek was so PG on the tin. Sheer you know, fucking just... hubris of you to say that. <laughs> I mean, not anymore. Shut Whatever the they're making now. Up. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. I mean, before Picard took a greasy shit on us, uh, I, I would say Trek was the quintessential PG, at least on television, the uh, quintessential PG uh, franchise. And it worked. Super well. I mean, we're not going to go through the plot of the movie scene by scene. We assume all of you listening to this have seen Galaxy Quest probably multiple times. You don't need us to review it. Uh, But let's talk about like what in the movie just worked so well. And it's easy to say the casting. It's easy to say, you know, the the fact that they they obviously were really gentle with fan culture and, and uplifting it rather than making fun of it before because there's a million things we're gonna have to talk about down that train let's let's start with you know you and me being our normal sour selves and what's wrong with this movie okay and i'm gonna directly uh plagiarize the work of screen junkies and their honest review of this because it is literally the only bad thing i can say about it is how are you gonna have a fucking movie with sam rockwell where sam rockwell is not dancing Okay, Sam Rockwell wasn't fucking in anything at that point, right? Like, was that a thing yet? I don't think it was by then. So he's in uh, Green Mile, which comes out along the same time. And and that's in the little interview we watched. Um, You know, he did not want to do this movie uh, out of fear of being permanently cast as comic relief. Uh, And they had to like really twist his arm to be in there. Apparently up for that role of a guy he beat out. uh, Ant-Man, I don't know I'm blanking on his name right now, Paul Rudd, who is an amazing fucking human being. Have you watched the Paul Rudd uh, Hot Ones interview yet? Oh, yeah, that's a classic. It's... It, this is the broadest bro. I know. Like, <laughs> what a fucking cool guy. But, uh, yeah, Sam Rockwell was a nobody uh, at that time. He didn't want to do it, but because Green Mile coming out, which was a very stark contrast... Uh, he did, you know, agree to take the role and do it and knocked it out of the park. Yeah, he wasn't a thing. Nobody knew he was a great dancer. I don't care. I'm still holding it against the movie because uh, <laughs> some real missed opportunity there. And that's I, really I, where I, my criticisms end. 
Yeah. Everything else about this movie seems perfect. The cast is just nuts, right? Like uh, Alan Rickman is perfect for the role that they put him in. And his like dry British wit plays so perfectly well into the idea that they had for that character. You couldn't have gotten anyone better to do that. Sigourney Weaver's a great meta choice. Not only is she like good at being an act, you know, a, a serious actress, but she can be funny, and she is. Um, I think the underrated gem of the film every time I watch it is Tony Shalhoub playing uh, the the tech sergeant, playing the engineer. Uh, he didn't have a lot of dialogue in the film, so he clearly decided to take a line that his character was a pothead and he was just super chill now. And that's why he just didn't ever say a lot. And there are so many sight gags with him that are just get me to laugh every time I see it, like him eating his Lunchable as they are like going down on the shuttle down to the planet to get the uh, the 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 fuel sphere he's just like he's just grinning he's just eating his lunchable uh like when he uh gets teleported onto the ship and he's everybody else is freaking the fuck out and he's like wow that was cool you know that was a hell of a thing <laughs> like he's just he he figured out a way to take a character that didn't have a lot of dialogue that was really underwritten and be like well if i'm not gonna have a lot of things to do in this movie i'm going to do nonverbal things that are hilarious and he fucking kills it I think that Tommy Weber, uh, Daryl Mitchell, the helmsman who was the child actor, uh, you know, clearly in the vein is like this amalgamation of uh, of Wesley Crusher and Jordy LaForge. His face acting and his reactions really get good laughs out of me as well. You know, that's that's the cast and the the casting for uh, Jason Nesmith, you know, the captain that Tim Allen landed like hearing them talk about um, Mel Gibson as a possibility to be in the role. Like, that would have been a, that would have been a hell of a get in 99. I mean, yeah. like take yourself back to 99. This, that would have been between Braveheart and the Patriot where that was like peak Mel Gibson period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so holy shit. Like who else did they Mel, advertise in there? Uh, they, they talked about, uh, it said was, uh, Kevin Klein was like yeah. the guy they really wanted who turned it down. They talked about getting Bruce Willis. They talked about getting Tim Robbins, but uh, Tim Allen is perfect for that role. And I think that they, the decision they made to make him that he loves being the captain rather than resents it, which is the opposite of Shatner, right? Like right. the idea is he's a Shatner esque guy, right? He's the swaggering, you know, uh, captain of the, of the not enterprise, uh, but in, you know, Shatner is, is displayed in, in, in pop culture because of the SNL skit of hating being the captain and the show, get a life, all that stuff. Whereas this guy, the greatest part of his life is when he gets to act like he was actually that guy. And I thought that added so much to it because then you immediately buy into the idea of why he's super gung ho about like, guys, I got us into a space adventure for real. We doing it. Come on. <laughs> like, cause he wants to be the captain. It's the coolest thing he ever got to do. And Tim Allen is just one of those actors who has so much just natural charisma and has been criminally underused in his whole career. Like, this is probably his best movie, right? 20 years later, he never did Absolutely. anything better than this. Yeah. And, and I, I just think it's because it's just, 
I don't know why it's hard, but for for whatever reason, people could never find a, a use for for this. But this really was this was perfect. I think part of uh, Tim Allen too is that he's got that Disney money coming. You know, yeah. So you go into the Disney stable on voice acting, which you know, fairly enough. Um, Woody, right? Um, geez, why can't I think of names tonight? Hey, we can't. T- Tom Hanks, but you, Tom you Hanks. can't remember actors today. <laughs> no, no. It's the movie day. Uh, Tom Hanks, you know, certainly isn't limited by his Disney association, but he was also a box office juggernaut, whereas Tim Allen had more of the TV sitcom coming out on that, splashing hard into that Disney money. Um, and obviously, you know, he's got politics chaining him down a little bit but that wasn't the but, case that in was the more, early yeah, 2000s that, that went out at all like that's more recent like the whole him being like not in politically in sync with the rest of hollywood was basically since like what, what 2016 basically yeah yeah uh, his show's still going i guess that's really the the really maybe the reason why tim allen isn't used who hasn't had a big movie career is that i mean the man has been doing last man standing since 2011 like that show's been on his second sitcom's been on the air for ten years, like that he has a he's comfortable doing TV, so maybe that's the real reason. But anyway, he's fucking great. He nailed exactly like a unique way to portray this character of I'm Shatner, but I like it rather than I'm Shatner and I I'm secretly resentful. And there's a nice balance in that between all the cast members, you know. Having Rickman be the one that resents it is perfect because he's got the dry British wit element to go along with it. And of course, he's got all the talent, right? Like as far as like raw acting talent, he's the most gifted one of them all. And uh, they ask him to carry some emotional weight in the movie that I think is probably best suited for him anyway. Yeah. The crazy revelation to me in watching uh, the documentary was that this was initially Ivan Reitman. No, it wasn't Ivan Reitman. It uh, it was because uh, Ivan Reitman directed Ghostbusters. You're thinking they, of uh, Howard Ramis. Oh, Harold Ramis was going to be the director. But yeah, yeah. The, the documentary goes into great detail that the original director attached to the film was Harold Ramis. And he ended up walking away because the sense of humor they were going to go for with Tim Allen was different than his, which is probably right. You know, like if you watch Harold Ramis movies, they are very dry, right? But that's what's funny about. And this isn't a dry movie. It's a heartfelt movie, you know, which I think worked in its favor. And so having a director that was willing to basically go with that, I think, was a much better call. Not that Harold Ramis is one of the best you know, comedic minds ever to live, uh, but he's got a style and he was self-aware about it, which is neat that he kind of like all right well i'm not gonna do this movie because i think i would fuck it up he had some real fucking stinkers in his career so it's very true yeah um the movie serves as an excellent time capsule for a transitional period in fandom yes um you know at the heart of this movie at the core of this movie is the convention scene and i have had the uh you know, the the unique opportunity of having been part of these conventions for, I don't even know, 25-ish years. And I will tell you that the early 90s Star Trek convention and just sci-fi and comic book con scene in general 
was a wildly, wildly different creature than what we have today. And we've talked about it in the past, but I mean, you've got, uh, I, you know, I can personally speak to Origins, Gen Con, and, and, you know, the best of the bunch, Dragon Con. I haven't gone out for Comic Con on the West Coast, but, uh, you know, just Dragon Con really like the wild entertainment complex that is versus Star Trek conventions in the early 90s where it's literally, you know, the conference room at a Ramada in, you know, next to the airport. Uh, it, it, it's real. So when you see the first opening shots in this movie, and it's funny because you've got the stars up on the stage and then you've got the crowd out in uh, folding seats. And then behind that, you can see the merchandising, right? And part of me was like, okay, well, they're just trying to show you a complete composite of a con scene because certainly conventions now the merchandising would be nowhere near the event space like dragon con merchandise is its own five-story building three blocks up the street and you have these ballrooms bigger than you know football fields you know that they pack in for people there to see patrick stewart and the other big names um but in reality yeah like Back in the day, you would have everything in the same floor space. You would have the stars that were you were there to see within easy reach of, of plebes. They weren't getting special escorts through back hallways with security details. Like, I myself almost pushed TV's Batman, Adam West, down the stairs at the Mid-Ohio Con uh, <laughs> in 98 because... Did I ever tell you that story? Uh, no, but please do now. <laughs> so I was working at the movie theater and, you know, there's a bunch of nerds working at the movie theater and I was a young kid. This might've actually been 90, 95, I think. Cause I was, I was young and, uh, they brought me down. I had never been to Columbus, you know, two hour, two and a half hour drive away from Cleveland with people I didn't really know. So that was like a, a big deal for me. And we went to this Batman panel and the whole time we were there, uh, this manager who I worked with, Pat, Pat ties very closely into the the Fight Club story. Be- Jesus, we should that just do like, yeah, like maybe we should do a, a super special podcast where you just tell your movie theater stories. Like we 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 sh- it should be something you have to ask for. <laughs> like yeah. well, we need your consent before we let you hear this. TLDR: He stole a bunch of Phantom Menace cups when he quit the movie theater. This guy's a bastard. Um. <laughs> But like the whole time, he keeps like nudging me from behind with his shoulder, like walking into me, um, you know, which is just dumb fooling around stuff. And and finally, like I had enough and I flipped out and I was like, Pat, if you fucking bump me again one more time, like I'm 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 done with you. I'm going to knock you the fuck out. Just stop. So we go to this uh, Batman panel for the Adam West Batman series, and it's like the Joker and Burt Ward and Adam West. I'm sorry, it wasn't the Joker, it was the Riddler, and I think the Penguin was in there, and I don't know who else. And it's like a bunch of nerds jammed in a, a real little room with Adam West and these stars, and I mean, you could have thrown a fucking, uh, you know, a wadded up piece of paper and hit these guys. Like, you don't get to be that close with people anymore in conventions. Um, and this thing let out, and we're all piling out of the, the convention room and going back into the main hall. And sure enough, I get this fucking shove in my back. And I'm like, okay, well, Pat, uh, you know, I fucking warned you. And I saw that 
there was like stairs going down to the lower lobby and they have like that thick hotel carpeting and i'm like all right well pat can probably survive this if i shove him down these fucking stairs <laughs> and i spin around and i just go to shove him down the stairs in this fit of rage and i turn around <laughs> got my fucking hands on adam west and i'm about to shove him down the stairs and i'm like oh jesus christ dude i'm sorry and uh he seemed very confused and i was very scared that i almost just shoved TV's Batman down the stairs. <laughs> and my friends are looking at me like, what the hell? And I'm like, I thought it was Pat pushing me in the back. And they're like, oh. And that's the Wild West of uh, the 90s cons. You know, cra- I got I got tons of crazy... Jeez, oh, I don't even know if I can tell these stories. But, you know, I got tons of crazy, crazy stories like that from that early 90s con scene because these things were so small. The When I watched uh, uh, Crazy Gary... Be- well pre-accident crazy gary Busey uh beat the hell out of those white trash guys um <laughs> you know, like, crazy ass shit would go down at these and and galaxy quest really captured that because when you move into the scenes of uh of uh tim allen going into the bathroom where he overhears the um people know, the talking shit yeah saying like oh god these guys don't understand their jokes $15 for an autograph, which let me tell you, Dragon Con pricing is way higher than $15 for a fucking yeah. signature. I'll tell you that right now. It's a it's a bargain by today's standards. But the concept that a uh a a featured guest would be using the same public bathrooms as the con attendance just seems by today's standards so incredibly crazy. But um, you know, my wife's sitting there watching the movie and she's playing around on her phone and she said apparently that exchange there really actually happened to um William Shatner and that's what really clued him in for the first time that um there was a rift in the cast uh, that that people did not like him and that there was uh it soured him to the entire uh Trek fandom and exposed the own you know their own conflicts. And so yeah, maybe once upon a time you did have the big names sharing, you know, urinal stalls with uh, average Joe. Yeah, I, I I wasn't really like into going to stuff like cons and that sort of thing until a little later, the early two thousands for me. But even then, like it's exact kind of situation is the people invited to the conventions just didn't weren't like protected from a proletariat <laughs> like in the same way that they are now and you'd catch them just walking around talking to people and you know like i, I remember a very pre uh resurgence will wheaton once i got into a 25 30 minute conversation randomly about hockey you know just like he was just chilling out and we just i, I knew he was a big la kings fan so like one talked to him about hockey and you know it's just it was a much different time then, and um, it, it definitely is. I think the most interesting part of talking about Galaxy Quest is, boy oh boy, uh, is fan culture both different in reality and portrayed differently. This movie could not be made now. Being a fan of something could not be so unironically embraced as positive in the year of our Lord 2020. Like, not a chance. This this occurred just before the internet took off, and boy oh boy, has the internet both made fandom much more interesting, accessible, and straight garbage. And oh yeah, 
there is no better example of that than the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that and that's what makes it so meta and interesting for us to talk about is that here we are. You know, we have a podcast that's like 120 episodes deep, mostly discussing a television show that hasn't been on the air in two decades. Okay. And we're not the first, the second, or even the third podcast that you can listen to that's doing that. Right. And there's more coming out behind us. You even so have not even the, the, last. the stars of the show doing a podcast in service of their own uh, body of work. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, the accessibility of fandom allows for jabronis like you and me to buy blue ice mics and get a subscription to a web app so that we could do a podcast every week about a television show, which is cool because a, we enjoy talking about star Trek and now we get to do it and broadcast it to other people and b, a bunch of people listen to it. What the fuck? Right? Like all of a sudden there's all these doors that open, like our, our group of people listen to our podcast. We we've got people who are in, in across the, the world that, that listen to it Certainly not based in Ohio, certainly not based in the United States. We got fans who are in Britain, we got fans who are in Eastern Europe. It's crazy. So that part's really cool. And that's way different than what you see here, where fandom is still portrayed as very niche and almost shameful, right? And the you know, the big emotional uh climax for the fan element of the movie is just the longs character where at the end his fandom is rewarded with being able to do the thing that every fan fantasizes about is which is you know bail out the enterprise because captain kirk calls you right like oh and shout out to justin long who a has not aged and b is really good at impressions i didn't know absolutely was excellent all of us, all of his stuff was his. Uh, his Sam Rockwell was impressive. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fandom thing, you know, the the tipping point there was the was the corporate greed, really, and I think that's a big part of what has kind of soured a lot of the the fandom out there. Is that the suits have realized that rabid fan loyalty equals dollar signs. And that fostering um, those fan experiences guarantees asses and seats and eyeballs on screens. So, uh, you know, a lot has really been done to facilitate and protect and elevate these these elements. And, the, you know, when I'm saying the suits, it's it's the stars as well. Like, you know, once upon a time, Shatner used to shun uh, Trekkies for uh, living in their mom's basements and, and this and that. And now... You know, everybody understands you don't bite the hand that feeds you. You don't shit on the people who are putting money in your pocket. Um, and with the Internet and everything else that's come out, it's been easier to build these fan groups and uh, stuff like Comic-Con, you know, is, is entertainment industry complex, like launching points. Right. That's that's raw market data. That's the big splash when these uh, Marvel movies and stuff come out to, to build that hype and launch empires. Uh, the flip side to that becomes that, you know, it's not really a grassroots fan experience anymore. Yeah. It's trying to appeal to everybody. And we've certainly butted heads with, uh, you know, other Trek enclaves out there. And you can say, 
you know, well, you're not a real fan because you like this and you're not a real fan because you don't like that. I don't know how that sort of stuff really existed uh, pre-internet. I don't know what kind of community self-policing used to go on. Maybe the numbers weren't there to have, you know, divergent opinions to the degree we see now. But uh, with the protected status of being a nerd and the aversion to any sort of conflict, I feel like there's certainly been a watering down. um, And you get people who... I, I don't know. Maybe the reasons they're there are different than the reasons other people. I don't know. It it feels like it's a a lot of time. It's a it's a corporate amusement park instead of a fan club. And yeah, and I think it's it's a generational divide to a degree on that as well. I agree with you, and I think you're illustrating an excellent point in that with fandom becoming more corporate, it's expanded, and by and by making it less a tight knit local in person experience and making it an impersonal worldwide experience, the larger those groups you get, the more likely it is you get people who, even assuming the best of intentions, are going to come at it from a different angle. And like cosplay is a perfect, I think, way to synthesize that because that's not a new concept. People have been dressing up in costumes of their favorite things since start you know trekkies were invented in the 70s right people were wearing you know their home stitch starfleet uniforms since that could possibly be a thing but there is a difference between that and uh, you know a whole subset of people who take it to a what's just a professional level right of create recreating uh costumes and then going to conventions and being paid to make appearances there and that sort of thing because their work is so impressive and that's cool i think cosplay is really neat and and particularly extremely well ex- executed cosplay I, I admire as much as the next person but are, is that a person who is a huge fan of the of the of the pro you know of the show or the uh, or the franchise has watched every episode and memorized the technical specs and their love for it is so pure that they actually sat down and sewed a costume to go to the convention with or is it somebody who might you know have watched some of it have a familiarity with it maybe a you know uh, a fan of it but doesn't have that same level of investment in the properties uh that that someone else would have and it's really just a way for them to to express this other interest that they have like oh well you know i maybe haven't watched every episode of star trek but i definitely want to make a costume based on this alien that i thought was really cool design so i'm going to go to the star trek convention is that or that sort of thing and you know that's a pretty benign kind of difference, but it's the beginning of what becomes a much more fractured situation as you have more and more divergent groups that wind up being huddled into this big tent that is now being corporatized. And this this movie is like you said, it's a time capsule because it's before all of that happened, and being a nerd was bad. And because it was, everyone who was a nerd had to band together <laughs> to have other people to talk to about. And, uh, you know, that that's what we see here is the kind of last vestiges of that. And when I say generational divide, it's like people like you and me went through that. We're in our 30s, our late 30s. And we we were the last kind of group where being a nerd wasn't cool. Like the, the people behind us, you know, knowing who Iron Man was just meant you went and saw movies. Not that you you know collected comic books and that sort of thing, and I remember there was actually it was Penny Arcade. Do you remember the comic Penny Arcade, the web comic? 
Yeah, seeing about that today. Yeah, they did a whole series of comics about like how that changed, right? Where they were they're a little older than us and they went, you know, when they were in kids and they were in high school and they were young, being a nerd got a beat up. And now it's a thing everyone thinks is okay. And back and when they did these comics, it was like the early-ish 2000s, so it was like 2004, 2005, they were defensive of people claiming ownership over the things that they basically, you know, bled over in their opinion, right? Like, no, you don't get to come in and say you're this thing now because I had to, I had to deal with some bullshit because I was into it before you. That's not okay. And I think there's a, there's a bit of that resentment still in the, com- in a, the community of people who are super fans who have dealt with social inclusion as a consequence, sometimes probably self-inflicted. Sometimes, you know, it's their own fault. I think a lot of the time it's their own fault. I think you and I know people and have experienced people that that it's their own fault. But at the same time, that's their perception and it, it, it creates this, this negative know, feedback loop. And if we're doing social commentary, you know, shouldn't it be, wasn't it all of our goals once upon a time? Like, God, I wish more people were into this. I wish, you know, these movies were more blockbusters. I wish comics were turned into larger properties. Like today in 2020, like all those wild dreams have come true. And, you know, it takes changes to bring about those results. And it's easy to look back and say, like, you know, we we bled for this. How dare these Johnny come lately? But like that's really been the goal all along. And, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's that human hipster. Like I was into you know fucking dingle hoppers before they were cool you know, <laughs> or whatever. what what do you think the odds are that dingle hoppers is a band like two to one 100 percent i i you think 100 percent? i think it's okay i was i I'm was gonna not, see if i can get i'm not gonna justify that through google that. result dude I, I i know dingle hoppers are a fucking you, but, know, you know you know it's a band it's it's built into human dna to to have that resentment to a certain level and i you know you got to be able to let it go and walk away from it the nerd culture in this movie is unique in that for the time it would have been par for the course to just shit on people and earlier in the movie it's no one's shitting on them but there's you can see the the tinge of of a negative connotation right when uh, alan rickman's sitting there signing pictures and like you know kids in costumes are you know, talking to him about his character's um, moral code and like tech specs or whatever. And it's just kind of pissing him off. He, it's not shitting on him. You know, it's not like he's like, Oh God, you people. It's like, he's got his own frustrations and he kind of vents on it a little bit to the kids. Uh, And, and again, that's, that's very unique for a nineties movie. It embraces that culture. It recognizes it for what it is in a positive light. Uh, a truthful light and in the end you see it's it's a warm accepting light and that's really cool to see out of something from this time frame oh by the way you're absolutely right i don't want to discount anything you said that i completely agree with you uh but i've you know exploring some of the things we've been discussing justin long how old is he guess uh, he seen so they said he was twenty in this movie. So I don't, I can't do math. <laughs> forty, he's forty-two. That that man you saw on screen in that documentary, he was forty-two. 
That's that, that West I, Coast Hollywood diet, man. Yeah, That's what happens when yes. you don't eat meat. That's fucking clean living. <laughs> um, you know, he, I feel like he kind of tainted himself with those Max Switch ads. Like, that's what I'll always see him as, the uh, the Max Switch guy. Yeah, he did uh, that with John Hodgman, I remember. Yeah. yeah. He's been in some fun stuff. Um, the other yeah, big he, I, cast. F is for Family is like one of my favorite things he's been in lately. I don't know if you've watched it on Netflix. It's the animated yeah, series that Bill Burr does. Yeah, yeah it's fucking good. Bill Burr fan, so I get dragged into all of his stuff. I, you know, you're, I, I, Casey always uh, is a person who impresses me with her taste. So, and it's, I'm not surprised to hear that. Bill Burr's involvement with the Mandalorian is excellent because he was so vocally shitty towards Star Wars fans. So for him to end up in a Star Wars property, a very successful Star Wars property, and get a taste of some of that mouse money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, the other really cool casting thing out of this, because, you know, I love Mass Effect and you love Mass Effect, the bad guys in this movie. Part of this movie is, hey, the convention scene, nerd love and the life uh and and trials and tribulations of the star trek actor the other part of this movie is a legit fucking star trek uh plot right like you strip out all the humor and all of the self-referential tongue-in-cheek ooc you know actor stuff and if you just play this as a straight space adventure it's pretty fucking legit and that includes the stan winston uh, you know, top shelf Jurassic Park ILM quality special effects on the ships, the explosions, and the aliens. So you've got it's hard to make an alien. I mean, it was hard to make an alien back in, in Predator, right? Like to make yeah. something that really stood out as plausible and scary and and like intense. And I would say the and bad not, guys, not coincidentally, Stan Winston made that alien too. So, you know, what is it's the like world the... going to do, Joe, when Stan Winston dies? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, fortunately, you know, he's he's had a lot of people work for him. So good thing. It's like what happened when Jim Henson died. You know, fortunately, a lot of people worked with him and carried on his legacy. But he certainly is responsible for inventing so much of what we basically Robo-Cop enjoy. Going. Um, anyways, the bad guys in this movie, they're like, uh, lizardy kind of buggy, like just intense dudes. And and I think they really serve as a great figurehead of like an evil space race. They, they, they check all the boxes. The main bad guy's name is Saris. And did you recognize his voice? I did not recognize his voice, so I expected to have my mind blown. Who was Robin it? Robin Sachs, who did the voice for Zaid Masani in Mass Effect 2. Oh, okay, yeah. So, uh, he was DLC. Uh, underrated. I like Zaid. Um, He's really good, man. His uh, access to the sniper rifle uh, made him a big deal for me, like, I like to go sniper rifle squads and uh, he was. Oh, yeah, he was. He was fucking all the all of the uh, DLC characters in every Mass Effect game were always OP. But that's like that's the story of DLC. Like it comes out and it's like, well, it's going to be better than the shit that's in the game. So here you go. Uh, uh, Shout out to all of the uh, Thermian actors like uh, they definitely go into a lot of detail for them in the uh, documentary. Of course, it's just a riot to watch them. Like the idea of that they're octopus people. Yeah. And so they, they don't know how to walk, you know, and they're kind of doing this goofy shit. They don't, they have like 
uh, underdeveloped sense of emotion. So they're very childlike and uh, all of the people playing them were a hundred percent invested in doing that. And then you got to hear the stories in the documentary of like how they were all just cracking each other up, like coming up with all this backstory for it on their own of like the things that you see them doing in the background of like how they walk with their arms was something they came up with. It wasn't in the script. It was just, they just kind of figured it out. Uh, all those guys were great. Um, and it was fun to hear them talk about, uh, you know, how they kind of came up with all the canon on their own and that like, uh, the, uh, Enrico, uh, Coltononi, the kind of that, the Malthazar, the head Thermian, he was like the, the, the bad guy on set with Tim Allen. Cause Tim Allen would just be like cracking jokes all the time, like making fart jokes right before they said action. And he'd be egging them on by laughing at him every time. You know, um, he was um, he was just in Westworld season three. I, I've been catching up on that and he's got a real juicy role. So that was crazy to see him back in here. Um, obviously, you've got uh, the guy uh, Dwight Schrute from. Uh, the Office, whatever his real name is. I'm, I'm oh, Rain Wilson. Right yeah. And, then, yeah, and Malthazar you know, was, was I remembered him more from being um Veronica Mars's dad. I don't know if you ever watched Veronica Mars. It was uh, Kristen Bell's first like big thing that she did. It was basically like a, a, a detective show. Uh, and he was like the sheriff of the town or whatever that they were from. Anyway, yeah. But yeah, this was Rain Wilson's first real gig. It was it was it was Justin Long's real first real gig. There was another Star Trek actor who's in it for like a half second. Uh, one of the three uh, Thermians that greet them in the teleporting room is played by a guy who ends up playing a role in Enterprise. Uh, I forget the actor's name. And he plays Crewman Daniels, who ends up being a really critical character on Enterprise later. Um, I don't didn't. I, I think they kind of missed that connection when they were doing the documentary. It seemed like it would be kind of a, uh, you know, a thing to point out that somebody wound up getting on Trek after being on Galaxy Quest. I want to talk about the transporter scene. Uh, because that was one of the two biggest moments. Like if I had to break down my two favorite scenes in the movie, I would say the reactions of the crew as they are transported from Earth up to the, uh, the star dock and the, like the trauma they have all gone through in, in this crazy physical stress and traveling across the galaxy. Uh, and before they can recover from that traumatic event, these fucking squid alien monsters blob in their way in the door with a bunch of what looks like vicious metal cutting <laughs> instruments like buzzing them in their face as everybody tries to cope with it. And it's like, it's such a real moment of like, how is anybody supposed to be able to cope with this? And, you know, they're like, Oh, forgive us. You know, they, they polymorph into their humanoid forms. Like, Oh, sorry. You know, didn't mean to be rude. And when, when Sam Rockwell starts like screaming in horror along with uh, the helm guy, it's like, that is exactly what a person should, should act like in this moment. And, uh, and I love that. And then, of course, you know, the other big standout moment for me uh, is uh, when uh, the one guy dies and then you've got. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like Alan the... over him and gives the heartfelt grab Thar's hammer quote, which brings tear to my eye every time. Yeah. Like, you know, it's coming. And it's still brought a tear to my eye. And you 
you know, it, it was a basic setup in the sense that, like, obviously, he's this line represents his failure as an actor, as far as he's concerned, right? That he's been typecast, which is the the whole Leonard Nimoy problem that he had for years, or a lot of the Star Trek actors had. And I think the moment sells itself emotionally so well is that in the moment you see the switch in his brain because he know he knows this guy's gonna die, right? Mm-hmm. And he knows like that how meaningful this is going to be to him. And he like takes a breath and his whole face changes when he goes to deliver the line, you know, in the scene. And it's like, that's what, how good Alan Rickman is, is that I, that's not in a script. You just are able to do that or you can't. And that's what makes it special. I want to talk more about the scene because, you know, I, I wish I'd kind of had a better introduction to it uh, in this because it is such a huge part of of the movie and and such a perfect example of like that story arc which we've seen you know a dozen other times like that intersection point not only is it fulfilling a dying man's wish uh not only is it him growing past his own hang-ups uh but like that entire like kind of story arc there when he meets the protege and like finding out this while the entire crew has been easily uh bullied by this alien race the green guys you know because this dude has followed the teachings um and broken away from the rest of his culture he has survived where everybody else has been subjugated and really set himself out and like you know the hands of illusion or whatever it's called and like all these little funny pun gimmicks from his character in the tv show this guy has been living in real life and that's that is certainly something that's out there in the fandom. Like, you know, Jedi is a real religion that people practice in real life right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've got these disciples of logic and all this other stuff that it's like, dude, that, that's not real. You shouldn't be. But people are living their lives like that. And that's what he's this guy's done. And he is in that moment when he's dying on the floor, like Rickman puts all those pieces together and kind of like realizes like this is real this guy has made this real and this thing that I've been hating for the past 20 years, um, there is value to it. And I, I have brought this value into my life and I have bought in um, and I've, I've grown in the process and, and made myself a better person through this guy's example of my example. It, it can even be broken down. I think more simply, it doesn't require you to be someone who believes like follows the teachings of the Jedi in real life. It's just as simple as a lot of the stories that these actors have of people coming up to them and saying, there's you, you, what you did in this show was so meaningful to me in my life and ended up being fundamental in who I became like James Doohan used to tell a story where, you know, somebody that he met at a fan convention said like, you know, I just, you know, I was in a bad place in my life and, you know, I, I started watching Star Trek and I, I loved Scotty and I got into the idea of being an engineer and, you know, decided I'm going to go back to school and I got to, you know, kept coming to conventions and eventually like made it all the way through school and like sent him a, a you know, a picture of them with the, the degree and like got to know like this person, you know, had a lot of problems, tried to commit suicide and the, that Star Trek saved their life and, and, allowed them to find a path through life you know and that made what 
he was doing feels so much more meaningful to him of like, wow, how, how can I as an actor ever top that? Right. Like I was on his TV show and somebody identified it so with it so completely that they were able not only to pull themselves out of a dark place, but then like find purpose in their life and, and find a passion and explore it. And you can't beat that, right? You can't beat having that kind of impact on somebody and feel like you've done something good in the universe. And that's what this moment represents for the whole film is now all of those experiences that those actors had like that, you know, what a, what a, you know, it, it can be a, a uplifting, but also a burden to have that thrown on you for the, that first generation original series cast, like, no, nobody there signed up to be a role model and have that kind of thing laid on them. And the things that that original series cast had had to shoulder moving forward, like what a wild unknown that this all could have turned into that, where you're making, you're saving people's lives uh, or you are becoming the center of obsession. Like certainly with Next Generation Forward, everybody knew goddamn well what they're getting into. You know, right. by the time and, and that's one of the things we punch Voyager in the dick with heavily, heavily in, in season one was like you knew what you were getting into. You knew what the fandom was uh, talking to the writer and the showrunners. You knew the level of expectation and where the bar of standards were. And a lot of that sloppy work in the first and second season, we were not at all shameful in our criticisms because Everybody involved in this project knew goddamn well what they were getting into. Picard, same deal. Like, you know what the fandom is. You know what the level of expectation is. And if you do not raise to meet that challenge, shame on you because you've brought this on yourself. But uh, everybody in the beginning, man, like, it was uncharted territory. And, uh, again, this, this movie does a great job of showing, like, these people didn't necessarily want this to be how what their life was going to be like and to be saddled with all these emotional and societal obligations, but there they were with it. And how were they going to handle it in the beginning of the movie versus at the end? Just to wrap up on the discussion. So we've actually already almost in an hour. It's just so much to talk about. Yeah. Like I knew that this would happen too. Like even not talking about every scene in the movie galaxy quest represents so much to fandom that, you, you can just unpack a lot from it. But I found interesting that the Amazon reboot was actually going to happen. That they, I remember them. I remember that news coming out that they had gotten everyone involved with the movie to actually do. And uh, it was maybe going to be a limited series or something on Amazon uh, for a galaxy quest. And what actually prevented that from happening was Alan Rickman passed away. Um, it was cool to hear. Like I, I'm familiar through Stevie because she's a huge um fan Harry of Potter. Harry Potter of Alan Rickman's reputation with his co-stars of being extremely supportive of their work and like going to all of their theater performances. He did that with all the Harry Potter kids who like go to the stuff they did after Harry Potter and like, you know, be in the audience and support them. Um, but he did that with guys from this movie too. Um, uh, one of the, uh, the uh, Thermians said that uh, Alan Rickman was the first actor I ever worked with and wanted to be my friend. He was just a, just a very friendly guy at, that was very supportive of his co-stars. And uh, even one of them, the, the guy who uh, actually played uh, Quillick, the one that was kind of his, the bonded with him that he had the big scene with, 
uh, was, you know, talked about like six weeks before he died. He came to a theater show and he was already looking really sick and he just kind of lied. He didn't want anyone to know he was going to die. And it's this huge shame. Obviously, every time you hear stories about that, Alan Rickman was awesome. And uh, this movie was incredibly elevated for him being in it. And it's a shame that, you know, he passed away and prevented us from from seeing a uh, what a return to the property would have looked like. But well, you know what? Listen, man, Picard, d- did this yeah. need should this have any sort of a sequel? Can we not just let perfect be good enough and leave it the fuck alone? Like, I'm not saying it's impossible and they couldn't do something with a mini series that would be entertaining and good. But the potential to just fuck something right into the dirt is is so real like just let it go man let let it sit on that shelf as a sterling example um and i'm not i'm not happy rickman died but i think (laughs) at a certain level i'm happy that they did not circle back around to this and plunder it for uh you know maybe it's a it's a real desire to to live in the universe but you know, the cynic in me says, uh, hey, all hell corporate. Someone sees money on the table and we see a rabid fan base, all that stuff we discussed earlier. And uh, let's go into it. I I love these satellite Star Trek properties that can exemplify the core concepts that are great about Trek and not feel the need to to take it to the next level like Discovery and Picard Um and can just say, you know what, 90s schlock is good enough for me, and I'm going to make a whole series around that with the Orville, or I'm going to make a movie about it with Galaxy Quest, and these things can be as good as they are. I love when I go to you know these conventions and I see a bunch of dudes um, in Star Trek uniforms, and now I'm starting to see Orville uniforms out there, and I've even seen a couple of uh, the Galaxy Quest guy uh, uniforms, and it's like, fuck yeah, man, it's it's. It's different uh, rights holders, but it's all really the same thing, and and I I love seeing it. Same, and you know I think I wish we still lived in a world where Galaxy Quest was the rule and not something that feels so dated as to be impossible. Like I like I don't want to end this on too negative a note, but I couldn't escape the feeling while watching it and thinking back to Michael Chabon. And him trying to defend his dumbass decisions with Picard on Instagram while giving interviews of talking about how every time they came across a concept that fans enjoyed that they wanted to purposefully subvert it to piss them off. Um, fandom is something to be celebrated. And, and you know, I, I, I really hope that over the fullness of time, we can return back to a point where maybe it doesn't look exactly like the world that Galaxy Quest gave us, but still allows fandom to be something to be celebrated rather than opposed for the million reasons people feel like they need to oppose it. So this was a good this was a good topic. Thank you to our our fans who suggested it. I I look forward to, you know, we, we're trying to do these uh, Patreon specific podcasts, a couple of them a year as a thank you. So, you know, we'll let this up for a few months and and uh, eventually make it available to everybody. And then at, at that point, we'll ask. It's so uh, funny that topic. our first Patreon was full penetration, boobs and dick Star Trek porn parody. And our second one was like so wholesome to the point where they couldn't even swear. I want to talk about the swearing. Apparently they oh, swear. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. The copy I watched, um, 
you know, when uh, Sigourney Weaver goes, oh, fuck that. And said, she says, oh, screw that. And it's very clearly been dubbed. And it happened. And my wife's like, what? And I'm like, I don't know, man. Maybe I just oh, got that's, a goofy that's copy. The, yeah, that, like, that's the most that's one of the TV. most famous edits of all time. Like only I think the diehard Mr. Falcon uh, TV edit might be more notorious. But for me to find out through watching the documentary, like that was how it was displayed in the movie theaters. And that was just part of the play by um, New Line to say this needs to be a kid's movie. We need that PG thing and and get rid of all the profanity. And again, the story works. You know, I'm sitting there, nobody's swearing. And, and I know it's petty for us to harp on Admiral Craft Services and, you know, the sheer fucking hubris or whatever. But like. I don't I don't need I don't want the profanity in my Trek. And even when I'm watching a jokey comedy movie, it still comes across as better Trek. I don't need that that gritty, bleedy realism, whatever. Like it was a great moment in in the movie (laughs) to see that dub. It was even better to find out that that was intentional. And that's what people paying 12 bucks back in 99 to go see that uh, movie actually got. And the fucking like the confusion that I'm sure must have been on everybody in the audience's face when they saw that, like how good, how good. Yeah. The the fact that it's never been fixed, like there's never been like a director's cut of this and I don't need one. I don't don't need, I don't want to see the, the everyone curses edit. Like that is such a perfect unintentionally hilarious moment. Like for our international audience, just in case my reference made no sense, uh, the movie Die Hard 2, uh, like many movies from the 80s, was given a TV edit. But Die Hard 2, being a very R-rated action movie with not just violence but profanity to spare, uh, received a number of questionable overdubs by someone who did not sound like Bruce Willis at all. And at one point, instead of saying yippee motherfucker, it was yippee Mr. Falcon. <laughs> And it's become something of a a meme, a famous meme here in the United States. I want to say that I saw Casino on TV and they replaced fuck you with thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a really good one. Wow. One last thing I want to say about that. God, there's so many. I feel like we barely talked about them. We talked about everything but the movie. The, The part where they have the room full of bad guys they need to clear. And he's like, oh that rock monster still down on the surface and like they they suck the rock monster up and then beam it into the ship and it rampages and like gets everybody blown into space like that was such a like an abusive D moment <laughs> I, like, hey here's this thing that was like dangerous plot before let's turn that into a weapon for us now and like abuse this super op situation we were faced with earlier like so good so good it, it just makes perfect sense too like it's a total fan move right like yeah it's, it's it's the thing you always talk about doing is using your teleportation device doohickey whatever you call it for uh, nefarious reasons and and it's they, also they about pull like the trick. why seven of nine being able to resurrect people from the dead was like a terrible fucking thing to introduce because now Nobody on Voyager should ever die because seven of nine can raise them with Borg pixie dust nanoparticles. And, you know, anytime you encounter situations, so well, back in season four or whatever, we did this. Why can't we do it now? And, and this was a great example of that, like, hey, there was this super invincible rock monster. Why couldn't they just transport it up to the ship to do their dirty work? Oh, yeah, they did that. 
Sweet. Great. Use the, the toys on the table. Thanks for your continued support on Patreon. And uh, we will continue to catch you on our, our hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. And when time comes, you can count another poll for what you want Peter and I to ramble on about for an hour. And if you want those uh, spicy uh, Peter's youth as a theater worker, that might I be can't. like, that might be some OnlyFans level comment, you know, content. So that's going to have to be post COVID-19 in person with me patting you down to see if you've got any sort of recording. <laughs> So, I, you know. I'm pretty sure most of the stories will get me in jail still. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was a sorry. Time. Yeah, that won't be one of the options. So, we'll see you later. 